As a pastor, I'm constantly concerned about how to create connections beyond just the weekend services. And one of the valuable tools that we have found for achieving this at our church is our app powered by Subsplash. It's one thing to have an app. It's another thing to have an app that has the ability to allow your community to access messages, resources, and even give. And Subsplash created that for us. It's become our go-to platform for connecting with our congregation in ways we never could have before. Subsplash is so much more than just a platform or even just an app. It brings people together, empowers giving, and transforms lives. If you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to visit their website at subsplash.com. That's S-U-B-S-P-L-A-S-H.com. Subsplash.com. Leadership doesn't have to be hard, and leadership can be for everybody. On this podcast, we want to help you make leading simple. I'm your host, Rusty George. Ever wanted to talk with a leader of a church of 40,000 people? (laughs) Well, today, you're going to get to hear from one. Ashley Woldridge took over for legendary pastor and planter Don Wilson at Christ Church of the Valley in the Phoenix area. He's one of the smartest leaders I know, and I think you'll love what he has to say. I want to say a special thanks to Subsplash for making this podcast a reality today. Make sure you check them out. And here's my conversation with Pastor Ashley Woolridge. Ashley Woolridge, thank you so much for being on Leading Simple. Uh, For our listeners that don't know who you are, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, it's good to be with you, Rusty. You've always been a, a good friend, and I know this is making a big impact. So uh, I am the senior pastor of Christ Church of the Valley, CCV, in the, the Phoenix area, and I'm pretty pretty honored to be able to do that and, and just to speak to leaders today. I, lo- I love leadership. Well, so you've been in Arizona for a few years. Uh, did you grow up there? Where are you from originally? Yeah, so I, I grew up in a very small town in Arizona. You know, we're in Phoenix, you know, one of the largest cities in the country right now, but I grew up a small town kid. I grew up in a town of about a thousand people, church of about 50. Dad was a teacher, mom stayed home, four kids. So, you know, super humble, you know, we didn't have much and, and weren't exposed to like a lot either, um, to be honest. So, uh, so those are, those are kind of the, the roots I had and, um, you know, went off to, to Bible college in California and then have been back in Phoenix ever since. So pretty, pretty much Arizona native uh, with, a, with a small stint in, in your neck of the woods in California. So you've never had to live through snow or uh, winters like that or anything like those of us from the Midwest ever dealt with? Man, I, t- I talked to, you know, my pastor friends and come January, February, you know, they're getting snow days and stuff like that. And we're out golfing. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you went to uh, Hope International. Was it Pacific Christian College at the time or was it Hope International by then? It was. It was Pacific Christian College. I think I was student body president the year it changed, the name changed, and all the students, you know, hated it. And, uh-huh. uh, but we've, we've come to love it now. So, but uh, yeah, yeah. So I was right in that transition, actually. Wow. Well, I remember. Uh, our basketball team playing you guys in the national tournament. Um, and that's the only way I knew about Pacific Christian College. But 
had I known what I know now, man, I would have gone there. So, you know, so much more, uh, more scenic than Joplin, Missouri. Oh, uh, what a great place. You went to a good school, man. We, yeah. <laughs> well, so you come out of Bible college, you decide to go into ministry. Was your first job at CCV? It wasn't. And actually, when I, when I left Bible college, I did not decide to, to go into ministry. I actually didn't feel like God was calling me into ministry. So I left Bible college and actually went into the business world. Hmm. Um, so I spent, I spent almost 10 years in the business world, actually. So I, most of that time at the Intel Corporation in, uh, in, in the Phoenix area, they have a really large presence. So Intel, um, you know, large semiconductor manufacturer uh, in the computer world. And that's, um, yeah, I, I, ministry was not on my, on my radar. It was, um, I, I thought in the back of my mind with this great training I got at, at Bible college, I thought, well, maybe when I retire one day, mm. like I'll, I'll go do something with the church. And it was about halfway through my time at Intel that um, I felt this distinct, you know, one of those, those rare times where God is crystal, crystal clear with you that you're going to go spend the rest of your life serving the local church and when I felt that calling, I had no idea, zero idea what I was supposed to do in the church. Mm. I just knew I was supposed to serve the church. And part of my burden, you know, it's because a lot of us have this burden that God puts inside of us. My, my burden became, I just began to, what, what I observed at the time of what I was experiencing at Intel, this very high, deep leadership culture. And then what I was experiencing in the church, I was kind of like, man, I want to go help the church be the most like the best led organization in the world. You know, I, I don't think the world should be looking to Apple's and Google's or Intel's or others for like, you know, leadership advice. I think they should be doing like what you're doing on this podcast right now going, Hey, let's lean in. Like the church is so well led. Let's lean into that. And uh, that became the, just this vision for my, for my life. I felt like God gave me. So when I left, I, uh, you know, I had zero thoughts of ever being a senior pastor. Um, I just wanted to help the church be, be well-led. And that, that became my, my battle cry. So what was your first job, uh, in ministry? Uh, how, how, I mean, cause we have listeners on here that are thinking I work in the corporate world. I'd love to help out a church. I'd love to be on a staff of a church. Uh, so how, how'd you make that move? Uh, did you initiate that? Did somebody kind of tap you on the shoulder and say, Hey, I think you could do this. What'd your journey look like? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, and and I would say to anybody out there that you know is has even thinking about or feels a call into ministry, I really believe God continues to take people that He's launched in the business world and and do a transition into into ministry. And one of the reasons, and this is just my story, is I felt like God took me to Bible college to learn the Bible, and I felt like He took me to Intel to learn leadership. Um, mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure I would have got the leadership training I got. Um, at the time, I think there's more churches now that are much more leadership intensive than it was, you know, back back in the day. But when I felt that call, you know, we were really involved at a at, at a church we were going to, and you know, I just started to begin sharing, hey, I think this call in my life, and people started tapping me on the shoulder, like, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And one of those churches that we had just been really connected with was was uh, CCV. Um, my wife had grown up there. We were not attending there at the time. We lived about an hour away mm. from CCV. So we were attending another church we were really engaged in. But um, the pastor at CCV at the time, Don, pulled me aside and he's like, man, I, 
I think you should come work here. I think you should be, um, you know, an executive pastor for us. And the church was running about 10,000 at the time and they had never had an executive pastor, which is just, you know, it's just, just, you know, mind boggling. And it, it says a couple of things. It says one, it says that, you know, just the leadership competency of Don, but it also says like, man, they, they, they probably waited like a, a little, little too long. And so when he asked me that, I was like, gosh, I, I don't think I'd do that. If I, if I was in your shoes, I wouldn't hire me to come be your executive pastor, a guy that hasn't been at your church and, you know, hasn't even worked in a church before. Like, I don't, I don't think I'd hire me. And so I told him no. And, uh, you know, if you know Don's personality, he's kind of like, well, I, I think you need to pray about it. And I was like, so I went home, I told Jamie, I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll pray about it. But I was like, this is still a no. <laughs> and uh, it, right. it's the weirdest thing is as I began praying about it, God just began to draw my heart there for some reason. And, and uh, I said, yes. I, I love that you went there because this is something that's so confusing for a lot of uh, leaders that are kind of either bivocational or in the marketplace and thinking about going into to the church. How did God begin to draw your heart towards that? Because we hear these stories of people having this, you know, Damascus Road, burning bush kind of moment. God spoke to me. Uh, you know, my Cheerios spelled out church, whatever it was. What did it look yeah. like for you? Because I don't know about you, but I've never heard an audible voice. Um, maybe you have, but what did that look like in your case? That's a, such a good question, Rusty. And I didn't hear an audible voice either. And I'm not discounting the stories of people that did. You know, you hear those stories of like I was on a park bench and right. God spoke to me and he mapped out, you're doing these three things for the rest of your life. That is not my story. And actually, I've I've taught a lot about just discerning the 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 voice of God and the will of God because it's it came out of the came out of that that passion came out of this experience because my calling literally just became this burning desire that I in my gut I could not shake yeah could not shake that I was supposed to serve the church and where I would say it, it got crystallized for me and I think this is really key you know for somebody listening if they, if the, if they're wondering is I began to feel that call on my own life and I knew it was clear and I was so afraid to share it with my wife because hmm. we were both working until we were both making, I mean, just as you can imagine, life was good. Okay. Like we are making great money. We have stock options that are just, you know, you got the spreadsheet that's like, man, if we stay here, like you are pretty much set. And so I was a little bit afraid to go to my wife and tell her, Hey, I think God's calling me to, to go spend the rest of my life serving the church. And so I'll never forget, we were in a van driving home from small group. And I said, babe, I think God's calling me to go spend the rest of my life in the local church. And she said, that's funny because I've been sensing the same thing. Wow. And that, that was my moment, you know, because I think, you know, we need to be careful that, that, you know, we're, we're not the only ones sensing something, but especially if you're married, I think God will speak, speak through a godly spouse more than anybody else. So you know, when I, when I started just thinking about calling, I, I came up with this, this very simple thing of, Hey, if you're feeling called to something, obviously you'll feel it from God, your spouse should confirm it. And you should have some other godly people around you confirming it as well. So yeah. as I began sharing that, you know, I had some really close friends that said, man, I sense that too. And, you know, I think when those three things line up, what you're sensing from God, what you're sp with your spouse and with some godly, you know, men or women around you, that, that became the, the crystallization of like, okay, I'm going to make this, this leap. I'm going to do it. Hmm. But one more thing on this, and you didn't ask this, but one more thing on this, this is really key is when I got that distinct call, I was ready to jump. 
I was like, let's go. And, and God made me wait three and a half years before it happened. Wow. Yeah. So, and it, it was one of the most frustrating seasons of my entire life. Cause I just thought, God, you called me to this. Let's go. I was like, so ready. And it's like, God sat me, um, and with no movement for three and a half years. And it wasn't that there wasn't like some job offers, some other opportunities, but I just knew they weren't, they weren't right. Okay. And looking back now, here's just the, here's the, the bookend mark on this. Looking back now, when you study scripture, it is so clear that often God calls men or women to something and then makes them wait. Hmm. And it's the waiting season that becomes the preparation season for what God has for you. And so many of us hate waiting. And yet if we look back on our life, it's those seasons of waiting. You, know, you look at David, right? He's anointed king. He's anointed and God makes him wait, right? You look at mm-hmm. Nehemiah, he right? feels this calling. God makes him wait. You, know, you look at Daniel's life. I mean, gosh, look at all that God made him go through before he raises him up. So I, I think we see this throughout scripture. I just think we hate experiencing it personally. Oh, you're so right. Oh my goodness. Well, even Jesus, you think about Paul. I mean, all these guys, you know, even Paul has his Damascus, Damascus road experience and it's, you know, 12 years before he gets a knock on the door from Barnabas. So And he waits. And he just waits, yeah. And he waits, right? Yeah, exactly. I wonder if it was easier to wait back then. It, it might've been, you know, I think, you know, Moses has to wait 40 years. So, you know, I'm thinking, hey, my three and a half years seems pretty short compared to what right. some people in scripture had to had to wait. So it it may have it may have been. I don't know. I think we are we are so microwave Christians nowadays that that we don't we don't like the slow simmer that God likes to do with us to begin to shape and form our hearts for what he wants. And the most dangerous thing you can do is circumvent that waiting season, I think, you know, and, uh, mm. and, and it's just, it feels so, it feels like an, it feels like a, something's wrong when you, when you know that God called you to something and it doesn't happen immediately. That feels wrong to us. Right. But biblically that is the model. Right. That's so good. And I, I don't want to, throw shade on anybody, but you think about some of the moral failures we've seen or the collapses of character we've seen in ministry over the years. Oftentimes there was not a period of waiting. There was a, I got this call, I'm going for it. And we applaud them for their tenacity. We call it faith. We call it, you know, this great uh, level of, uh, of courage. But oftentimes it really is in the waiting that we get forged for the preparation for what what God's going to do in us, don't you think? I think we could spend a lot of time talking about that because I, I think there's a, a link between, you know, our feeling like we're competent, but not allowing, allowing that waiting season for God to forge our character and to forge some skill sets. Mm. So when I look at my waiting season, I mean, I could tell you multiple things God did. Um, he, I developed as a leader more intensely in that three and a half year period than almost any other period of my life outside of COVID. Hmm. Um, what God began to form character wise in my heart to strip some things in me that, uh, even some sin I was dealing with, even some other things that I had, to, I had to deal with. And then what God did in our lives financially, hmm. as we developed a, a, a deeper heart for generosity 
and a deeper level of contentment, mm-hmm. which is very much needed in, in ministry. I mean, I think if I would have skipped that season, I would tell you this, I would not be doing what I'm doing today if, if I tried to circumvent uh, that waiting season. Uh, I wouldn't. I, I think something would have happened along the way that I, I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't be who I am today. So, um, well, yeah, I think there's a lot, lot there. Yeah, I think uh, I think you and I should drill down on that on another another conversation because I think there's a lot we can learn. I I felt the same way. I mean, I, I was in you know young adult ministry for almost a decade before I came a lead pastor and. Goodness, the things I learned there uh, prepared me for what I'm doing now. So you get into ministry, and you know your first stop is not you're a senior pastor. You're, mm-hmm. you know, an executive leader on this you know high octane team. But your passion was you wanted to take the leadership you'd learned in the marketplace and translate that to the church world. So I'm curious, you've got this high level leader and really focused, and there really is no gray area with the leader you're following, who's an incredible leader. How did you bring anything that you thought you had to offer to the table? Because I think there's some leaders out there thinking, well, what do I have to add to this? Or they might be a frustrated leader thinking, I got a lot to add, and this guy's not listening to me. And I don't sense you had that situation, but how do you lead from the second chair in a way that does help the organization get better without, you know, cutting your leader out of the legs and what a great question i mean i think i I was very fortunate you know don was very open to wanting Hmm. um you know help and and leadership so i think that helps Um, he is very strong and you know in in his views and everything else so you know i i think how you lead from the second chair really well is you come with heavy doses of humility Hmm. Um, i think the moment you're in a second chair and you think your way is the highway and you know how to do it. Um, that just wasn't my posture coming in. I, I, I knew there were some leadership principles that I thought we could um, apply. And, and I was not trying to turn the church um, into a business. I don't, I don't, I don't believe that. Um, I think there's just leadership principles that are leadership principles. And I think they apply to business or church. Every great leadership principle is a spiritual principle that comes from scripture because Jesus is the greatest leader that we've that, that's ever existed on this earth. So, um, so I think you have to come with high doses of humility and also um, a great sense of patience that that you need to you know bring bring people along as as we and and allow yourself to be shaped in the process because you might especially being new to an organization or being new to ministry you might think you know what needs to happen. But you may be way off base. You got to get some experience and legs underneath you to really understand the organization and the culture, and what really is going to work there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point because a lot of the things that it, the church is doing, they've done as a reaction to something. And a lot of us that roll in there, we don't know what that reaction was, and maybe it's a good idea, maybe it's a bad idea. But but here again, time allows you that chance to learn that wisdom. Yep. Yep. Okay, so you you follow this, uh, or you're working for this legend, Don Wilson, amazing, amazing leader, uh, focused, um, just such a such a great, great guy, uh, and and you get to work for him, you love him, and then you get the call to be his successor. 
How do you follow a legend? Because obviously, because you're a leader, there's things you do different, but you want to honor the past. Um, and there's you know a good transition process in play there. So suddenly you walk in one day and you're on the other side of the desk. What are some things you learned that you think, boy, I wish I would have done this differently? Or a few things you think, I think I did that okay, and I would do that again. Yeah, great. Yeah, good, good question. And Don is a legend. I mean, he is he is just an incredible leader that did so many things, um, so many things well. And I think that you know the benefit I had was was twofold stepping in this, this stepping into this role. Um, and one is I, I never wanted it. I never saw on my radar to be a, a, a senior pastor. That was not my path. Um, mm. I, I really, when I stepped in, I, I really felt like leadership was, was my gift. You know, I just wanted to help the organization be everything that it could be. Um, I never once asked to preach mm. um, or teach. And Don began tapping me on the shoulder saying, hey, I, th- I think you should teach a little more. And I was kind of hesitant at the beginning and started teaching a little bit more. And so as I did, I think he just saw more in me that he said, hey, I, I think this could be you. So when he asked me to do it, I was like, gosh, Don, that's, that's just not on my, that's not on my radar. And we had a few other people that we thought were going to be that. And, um, so I, I told him, I got to really pray about this. And, uh, so I flew to Israel, spent about a week in Israel, just praying. But my first prayer, when he asked me to start, start thinking about being a senior pastor, my first prayer was not, should I be the senior pastor at CCB? My first prayer is, God, do you want me to be a senior pastor anywhere? Mm-hmm. That's good. Because I needed to answer that question first. Then I needed to answer the question, okay, should that be here at CCB? And when I was in Israel, just praying, I mean, and just seeking God, um, yeah, I was all by myself, you know, walking around Jerusalem. It was just this really deep spiritual experience. I felt like the answer God gave me was... Um, you could be to, you know, do you want me to be a senior pastor? He's like, you could be. <laughs> um, and, and again, that, and I didn't mind that answer because at this point in my life, I, I, my, the word for my life and my wife and I's word, if you cut us was the word stewardship. Mm. And we just felt like we were just here not to own anything or be in control. We just want to steward whatever God places in our hands. I felt that God was like, yeah, I could place this in your hands and you could steward it, but I might place something else in your, in your hands at some point. You should be just as open to stepping into this to just as open to stepping out of it. Mm. And that's kind of the posture I've had too, is like, hey, God, if you want me to be a senior pastor, that's awesome. I'll do it. But if you ever want me to do something else, I want to be just as open to doing that. Because this isn't, as you know, being in this role, it's not a, this isn't a hill you climb. This isn't like a destination that you go to this is a this is a real battlefield mm. war that you're stepping into so then i started asking okay should it be at ccv and don and i had a lot of things to work through succession wise to to see if that would be the right thing and man it it did work it did work out but you know when you follow someone like don you asked about you know, how do you how do you do that how do you do that well you know you I had a benefit of, of working in the organization for a long, long time before I mm-hmm. stepped into the role. So I think that helps some because 
I've actually been in a leadership role where I'm helping kind of shape our organizational culture already. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people on our team, I, I've hired, I've worked with them for a long time. So I didn't feel like there was anything massive. I needed to go change culture, culturally because yeah. I was a part of shaping the culture. So that, that helped me tremendously. What's hard is like when you follow someone like Don, who's a legend, you know, you're, you're like, man, how do you do that? And I just realized I can't fill his shoes. Um, I can only step into my own shoes mm. and I've learned so much from him that I've benefited from, but I'm not going to be just like him because I'm not him. Mm -hmm. And if I try to be something I'm not, I think that's a recipe for failure. So I learned a ton, but I just tried to step into my own shoes and be true to myself. Yeah. You know, I think Craig Rochelle has that great line, you know, be yourself and people would rather follow someone real than someone who's always, always right. And I, I really resonate with that. Cause I'm like, man, I, I just want to be my authentic self and not try to pretend like mm. I am somebody else. Cause I'm, I'm not Don. I'm not. Did it take a while for, I'm sure people were kind and I'm sure there were people that said, well, Don always, did it take a while for you, even yourself to stop thinking, well, Don would have, or Don used to, and to think about what, well, what do I want to do? Yes. Yes. You know, we, the good news, we, we thought a lot, a lot along the same pages in, in a lot of things. You know, we just worked, worked together so long and we, we just had this good relationship. Um, but it did take me a while to really just say, okay, what, what, what do, what do I think we should do on this? Not, not what would Don do on this? Mm -hmm. And one of the benefits to our transition is Don handed over all the leadership of the church um, a year before we even announced the transition. Wow. So that, that became a great, that became a great gift for me because I, I got a little more used to, okay, I got to make the call on this, not Don. And he actually, he actually like, I mean, it was, it was incredible what he did. He actually moved out of his office, hmm. um, like literally moved out of his office a year before, you know, the, the transition, you're kind of like, gosh, you know, who, who does that? But it became this great gift for me because I got to begin to, wrestle with some of that before it, it actually happened. So I think that helped me a little bit afterwards of going, okay, I, I, I need to make sure that I'm, I'm doing what, what I think is the best thing here, not what someone else would do. Right. You know, one of the things I've always admired about you is you're so uh, team oriented. Uh, we all speak that game, but at the end of the day, a lot of us really like to be the guy, you know, uh, pushing the button, but but you really do share the load with your team. Uh, what are some strategies that you use to kind of keep that a reality in your culture? Hey, let me interrupt for just a second. If you're a church leader and your church does not have an app or your app seems to be a little bit limited, check out subsplash.com as a great resource to really give your app all the horsepower that it needs. You can connect people, you can help them get access to messages, and you can help them set up recurring giving, which is a game changer when it comes to resourcing your ministry, subsplash.com. Okay, back to our episode. Yeah, that, that's really a leadership principle I learned at Intel. I mean, they were such a, a team-oriented environment. And part of the reason why is because in, in larger organizations, it is much more apparent that there is no way one person has the capabilities to lead everything that needs to, mm. to get done. 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes in, in smaller organizations, we fall into the trap that, and it, it in my opinion, it is the greatest leadership lie that exists today that one individual can develop all the leadership giftings to lead anything that God's put under their care. That's good. I'm not, I'm, I'm not even talking about a senior pastor. I'm talking about you take any role on, on a staff. It is a lie to think I can just listen to enough podcasts with Rusty George, read enough books, get enough mentors, and I will develop all the gifts I need to lead what's under my care right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm of the opinion that is 100% not true. Mm-hmm. If Jesus, the only perfect leader that's ever walked this earth, decided to surround himself with 12 guys and give them authority and send them out and did, and he worked with a team of 12 and had an inner circle of three, what makes me think that I could, I, I could ever get to the place where I could do it on my own? So that, that's kind of the core conviction that I think a lot of us would be like, yeah, I want that. But then how does that play out practically? Yeah, It means, number one, you have to surround yourself with amazing leaders that are better than you, mm-hmm. better than you in a bunch of areas. And then you have to be very open and transparent about your weaknesses and point out where they're stronger. Mm. That creates a great team environment so that everybody's not sitting around a team going like, they're just looking to one person. No, you're looking for a team. And so that's that's a practical thing is you got to surround yourself with the right people. And, you know, John Maxwell said the size of the team around you will determine the size of God's dreams for you. Mm. And I, I believe that uh, wholeheartedly that a lot of us are faltering because the, t- the immediate team around us is not really good. Right. And the reason they're not really good is because we want all the credit. We want all the decision making. We're we're kind of this ultra dominant like point leader. So starting stuff with a great team. I think the other, you know, I'll just I'll just add one more practical thing. Then when you're making decisions, you are rarely, if ever, making a decision without the input and really being open to the input of that team. Mm. Um, I I couldn't even tell you one Moses moment where I've walked down from the mountain and been like, this is what we're doing. And I didn't get input or advice or let the team shape it or make it better or kill it all together. Um, and I think, I think that's the power of a team. And I think if you'll, if you, if you can make the team that, you know, the important part of your leadership, you'll make better decisions and your decisions will be driven further in the organization and they'll be taken further. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's the power, that's the power of, of, of a team. And, uh, the church is a tough environment for that because we think just cause the guy on stage can preach well means that he, he can make every single decision really well. And gosh, how many times have we seen that, yeah. that jacked up? Right. 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 Okay, so you you brought up Groeschel earlier. Groeschel talks about the further down you can push decisions to be made, the better off your organization will be. So if they don't have to run everything up the food chain and get your, you know, signing off on everything, they get to move quicker. What are the decisions that you think, okay, my top-level leadership team, whether you call that an executive team or whatever, we make these decisions. Other decisions, departments, ministries, campuses, they can make, but we make these. 
Do you have like three or four, maybe it's more than that, that you think we're going to make these calls? Yeah. And I think, you know, depending on the organizational size, you have to decide, you know, what those are, what those are for you. Sure. Um, for us, you know, we've got, you know, based on uh, the size of our staff, you know, we have almost 500 staff. We have a 15 campuses, you know, a church that this year is going to, you know, is, is, is right around 37,000. So I've got to think, okay, with, with that organizational scope, like what, what decisions have to boil all the way up to me. Mm. And I would say there's, there's only a few, if we were going to change the vision completely, um, on, on something with, with, with our church, I feel like my job as a senior pastor is to make sure that, that I'm casting good vision Mm. and that, um, you know, the direction we're headed for that heading for that year, um, is, is really, really clear. Um, I would say if something in, in our culture, like one of our core values was going to change that, that would have to boil up and be, be in my boat. Um, and then there's only a certain few hires that I would even weigh into. Um, mm-hmm. last year we hired 110 people. I was involved in two of those. Mm. Um, and only, only if there was a campus pastor we were hiring, do I even weigh in on that? And I'm not even sure I, I need to weigh on in on all those in the future. So I think there's just a few critical things. Like if it's, if it's a vision changing, if there's something culturally that someone's like, Hey, we want to change this, I would boil up to my Mm -hmm. table. Um, you know, something theologically that there's a question on, you know, as we talk about some of the nuances of some of the things going on in our world today. Like those are big decisions that have to boil up to that executive table. And then, you know, really, really key, really key hires. But I mean, the critical few there um, with our size, those are just a few that I think boil up to us. Okay. So what does a typical uh, leadership meeting look like for your team? Do you guys meet weekly? Is it bi-weekly? And then what's kind of the, the template agenda there? Because you're not wading through the weeds of all these little decisions you have to make, but what are the ones or the, at least the dashboards that you look at every time you get together? Yeah. So I, I'm, I have an executive team of, of three other guys. So there's four of us total and we meet weekly, but, um, two of those weeks we cut our meeting short and bring in a larger leadership team because we want them to make more decisions. Hmm even decisions we're making. So our, our typical agenda, and we have a set agenda that we use, we use an open agenda. Our typical, our typical agenda is we're going to open in prayer, really want to make sure we're asking God for wisdom discernment. We talk about, um, one of our, our core values or fundamentals, every single meeting. Actually, we ask that all of our teams open. So we have, we have this like fundamental of the week, that's just kind of one of our core values we're trying to drive in the organization. We talk about those every week. Um, as a way of driving culture a little bit deeper, because the deeper you drive culture, the less decision making you have to make. Does that make sense? Oh, that's so good. Yeah, that's so true. So a lot of times decisions are boiling up to your table because your culture is not clear. Hmm. So that so you know that the deeper you can drive your culture and be really clear on who you are as a as a culture the deeper you can drive decision-making because those become the guardrails. Your values become the, the guardrails to your decision-making. 
Um, without those, everyone's left to their own preferences. And that's why we get in all these, um, you know, that's why people have a hard time making decisions at lower levels. It's always boiling up because you're, you're basically talking about preferences all the time versus like, no, this is who we are. This is, these are our values. This is really what we value. Hmm. Uh, we talk, so we talk about one of those every week, even our executive executive team or any, any table at, at CCV that's going to meet, that has a meeting that week, they'll be talking about that. And then I ask uh, our three executive pastors to bring to, to the table any decision that needs the four of us to weigh in. Um, and uh, th- those, are, those are the big things we, we talk about. That's so good. Um, okay, so one of your core values or staff values, I should say, I noticed this on the wall last time I was there, was we pick up trash. Yeah. I love that. And I, I think there's a servanthood mentality behind it. But, you know, wh- how did you come to that? Um, wh- what's, what's behind that? And how have you seen that kind of uh, materialize over the years? Yeah. So, yeah, we have, we have these six core values. One of them is... Um, we want really want to have a servant attitude and we have a couple catchphrases under each of those core values. So under the, under the servant, uh, having a servant attitude is we pick up trash. We refuse to say that's not my job. Hmm. So that's, that's the value is, is we want to be like servant leaders. And, uh, you know, one of the, the things that, uh, and this is really goes all the way back to Don, you know, it, when Don was here, he would not walk past a piece of trash without picking it up. Mm-hmm. And it, it just became this thing that we've, we've kind of carried on going, Hey, when, when you see something that, that needs to be done, you know, it'd be easy when you see a, you know, a piece of trash somewhere to be like, Hey, let's call up, you know, somebody that's responsible for that and uh, <laughs> tell them to like, to do it. Now, why, why couldn't we just do that right then? Right. You know, we're, we're, we're all a part of this team, right? We all want to be servants. So um, so that's, that's just, that's just one of the values. And we, we try to have some behaviors, um, that we, that we put in place in the organization that help reinforce what these values actually mean. Mm. Cause it's, it's one thing to say, Hey, let's, we want to have a servant attitude, but I think you need some fundamental behaviors that show the organization. What do you, what do you actually mean by that? You know, what do you, what do you mean by that? Um, and so that. Those are the things where we've really tried to drive drive a little bit deeper. Okay, let's talk about message prep. Uh, everybody does it a little bit differently. Uh, some of us love it, some of us hate it. Um, but what has been your rhythm of putting together a message? Is that a you in the study by yourself and you come out with the you know the two stone tablets and pass that out to the campuses and, and everybody who needs to know it? Or is it a collaborative effort? Uh, at what point do you bring in collaboration? Do you have a research assistant? Just w- what's the message prep look like? And when's that begin for you? I, I would go back to what we talked about team. So the message, the message prep, it, it has team intersected in it from the beginning to the very, very end. So I'll give you a very high level. Mm-hmm. I would back up one year, um, one year out, there's about four of us that get in a room and all bring great ideas for series. So it's not just me. Mm-hmm. And as a team, collectively as a team, we decide what, what series we're going to do. Now, I would have the largest vote in that process because I have to preach the majority of them. Right. Um, but it is very much a team effort. I mean, I will tell you, there's so many series we're doing this year. Not my idea. Mm-hmm. Someone else brought it to the table. I loved it. 
let's let's do it. But that's a collective team effort one year out. We map out our whole entire year. Six weeks out from when a series is going to start, each of us that are teaching, and we have a teaching team, again, the team model, mm-hmm. we have um, anybody who's teaching in that series would come with a very rough outline. Mm-hmm. And we have a creative team and others around the table that are weighing in on that initial outline, some creative ideas where, where we're headed with the message. Uh, so we get some initial feedback there. And then we have creative teams running on for doing our life story. We have a creative idea or graphics, all that kind of stuff. So they're in front of it. And then the week of when we really start like writing the message, I already have that kind of that rough outline. I've already been thinking about it for a while, which I think is, is, is important. It's already kind of been brewing in me. And then uh, Monday I do a, a full day of study. Mm-hmm. Um, by myself just taking all that input all that all the things we've thought about and i start writing um i'll start writing a little bit towards the end of the day but a lot of study that day tuesday by the end of the day i'll have a rough draft Mm -hmm. of the message and i'll send it to a team of six and say okay here's where i've landed give me some feedback and i get all i don't do anything on wednesday that's a full leadership day thursday i walk in i get all that feedback and i change the message based on the feedback and there's never been one time that that message has not getting, gotten better because of that feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's like one of the most valuable things I do. Thursday, I'll, I'll have a final um, draft that I'll send out. Friday's my Sabbath. And then Saturday, I'll come in and, and I'll start running through it to, to preach it that night. And you guys still do Saturday night and Sunday morning, correct? We do. Yep. So we do Saturday night services and Sunday morning, and then we have a Monday night at one of our campuses. But, and then I would say after I preach the first service, I, there's about six of us that sit in a room and critique it. Mm-hmm. And we do that every single time we preach. Mm-hmm. So the amount of feedback, the amount of feedback or like team that's weighing into the message is just, it's so, I just value it so much. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always input on the front end. There's always input the week of, and then after I preached it, there's input then, and I will always change something between, you know, the first and second service that I, that I preach. There'll always be something that I said there, you know, did, shouldn't say or cut something out. I mean, it's just, I, it, it's been, it's been really good. Like I just, I love that. I love that team. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard you recently talk about um, the element of if your church has plateaued, isn't growing as stuck in somewhere at some point, there's one of these five things that has kind of stopped having attention given to it. And you gave us these five things that cause a church uh, to either grow or stop growing, depending on how much maintenance you give it. Um, Can you just tell for our listeners these five things and give us kind of a, a bullet point description of what those were? I thought that was so helpful. Yeah. And these are just for us. I think, you know, I think every church should figure out what they are for themselves. But, you know, every church has a vision. Most people have a mission, you know, mission statement. But I think where we where we get stuck sometimes is we don't really have, like, what are, what is the strategy? What are the key things that are going to help us reach our vision, our mission? And for us, those five things are we need to continue to expand our reach and footprint. So we need to, you know, we need to continue to have, if, we're, if we want to grow and reach more people, we need more chairs, more buildings, more more space. Um, we need to build a strong team and culture. So it really matters who we have on our team and the culture that we're, that we're creating and making sure we reinforce, we need to guide people in their next steps. That's the third one. Mm -hmm. So 
This is all about our discipleship strategy. What are our next steps and how are we encouraging people to take those? And are people growing in their, their faith and their discipleship? Third is we have to focus on our financial health. Um, and five is we have to improve our systems and processes. Mm-hmm. And what we talk about is that if you're not seeing growth as a church, you're not reaching your vision or mission you've put out normally for, and I'm just speaking personally for us, it's because one of these five areas is off. Mm-hmm. And I think typically one of them is off. You know, it's, it's a very rare occasion that you're just hitting on every single cylinder. So when we go into a year, what we're doing is we're looking at those five things going like, where do we need to put more energy into one of these? Cause I'll just give you a couple of examples. It's awesome. If you have a great culture, you have great people on your team. You're really pleased with that. And people are growing spiritually like crazy. Like people are taking their next steps and you're seeing people baptized and getting into groups and people are really getting discipleship. But if you don't have the building space to continue to grow, you'll, 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 you'll hit a barrier, a barrier, you'll hit a growth barrier and you could, what's another scenario. You could add new space and you could, you could actually like hire the staff, but if you don't have the financial health to be able to actually pay that staff or pay for those new buildings, you're going to, you're going to stifle your growth. So all of these matter and you just have to determine where we out of balance, where do we need to put some more energy and effort towards one of these and um mm. yeah so those that that's the way we we look at our our strategy and our growth barriers um a lot uh, as, a, mm-hmm. as a team those are so good and I, I can't think of a situation where you don't have to evaluate all five of those things and it's been a really good template for us um out of that you have decided your word for the year which i love that concept for your staff is focus and you know you've used the example before of you know chick-fil-a versus jack in the box and you know just zeroing in on what uh, what matters most and uh, doing it really really well how have you cuz we're a few months in now to this word of the year what are the times that you feel like you it's so tempting to drift out of focus or let's add a few things that may be ancillary or adjacent to what it is we're trying to do how have you maintained focus in what it is you guys are trying to accomplish mm. man we could we could talk a lot on this topic because I get, I get passionate about it and again I, I won't say this is for every church or for everybody just for us you know we we just believe that churches don't drift towards simplicity mm. or focus you're always drifting towards complexity and mm. being out of focus and the reality is the way God has designed us and the way that God has designed our churches is we cannot, we, we really, we have limitations as leaders. So we have to decide where are we going to focus our energy because our energy is limited. Our time is limited. That's good. So where are you going to focus to have the highest eternal return? And, um, you know, you, you have, you have in and out in California. You like in and out. Uh, I love in and out. Our, our kids, if you ask them where they wanted to go tonight, they would say, we want to go to in and out. So we go to, we go to in and out a lot. We also go to Chili's. There's a Chili's right next to our house. We also go there. Um, it's not bad, 
I've just never walked out of Chili's and been like, dude, I cannot wait to go back there. That was unbelievable. But every time we get done eating in and out, I'm like, I cannot, that was so good. Yeah. And I just wonder what people experience in our churches when they, when they come, I wonder if people are just dying to come back. They're like, that was, I just experienced Jesus. I was, I mean, that was so good. And sometimes I think we, our menu is so broad Mm -hmm. that we're doing so many things that like a C minus, like maybe it's, maybe it'd be beneficial for us to narrow our focus and do more things at an A plus. Mm. Um, And I think it's hard to do things at an A plus if you are so broad that you are moving in a thousand different directions. Mm. So we're a couple months in, this is our word for the year. We've always been a pretty focused church, but we just feel like coming out of, coming out of COVID, um, you know, we are throwing a lot of mud on the wall Mm -hmm. during COVID. Like a lot of us were like, man, you know, like, what are we going to do? Let's try some new thing. Let's, Mm -hmm. let's, and all that, some of that was really, really good, but we just felt like, okay, this is a season where we need to get back to our focus and make sure that, that our whole staff is, uh, is moving in the, in the right direction. So we've Mm. seen a lot of benefits from it. And, uh, Mm. We, we have a phrase, if this, this helps anybody else, we have this phrase we say that we say, we believe narrowing our focus broadens our impact. Mm. That's so good. Yeah, there's this temptation for all pastors, especially to think, I have to reach everyone. And, uh, you know, even uh, Peter and Paul, they narrowed down their focus and had maximum impact. Jesus certainly never traveled very far from home. I mean, there's so many examples we can see over and over again, but the temptation is to take that phrase from Paul, I do all things, or I can do all things for all people, you know, that kind of mentality, and try to do it um, is, uh, is really dangerous. Uh, Ashley, I want to respect your time, so I'm going to let you go, but this is, this is such great stuff. I've written down two or three things that we could do a whole other podcast on. Love to have you back. Mm. Um, I, I just really appreciate your voice uh, in... Uh, the church world, uh, you are a, uh, and, and that's what makes you great is you would never acknowledge this, but you're a very servant-oriented, humble guy that serves anybody in in need um, in the church world, uh, regardless of their, uh, their influence or the size of their church. And I just want to say thank you uh, for that. Well, thanks for what you're doing and investing in this leadership community. And I love what God's doing through you. So it's an honor, honor to be with you. Okay, so I got to ask you one last question. I've never said this to you before, but uh, I always felt like you looked so much like the former head coach of the Arizona Cardinals, Cliff Kingsbury. Did you ever get confused for him? Um, anybody ever asked for an autograph? Or now that he's been fired and is out of town, is it easier for you to roll around town? <laughs> yeah, people would tell me all the time, you look just like the coach of the Arizona Cardinals. And, uh, I, think, I think two years for Halloween, I think I dressed up like him. You know, oh. just, like it, was, it was like an easy outfit. I just threw a Cardinals shirt on. Oh, that's so good. But yeah, he, he's, he's no longer here, so I don't, I don't get that as much, which is probably, probably good. But uh yeah, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's some resemblance there, and uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't mind get down there on the field sometime. And yeah, yeah, that's that's my my messed up thinking. I'm like, I could probably go down there and coach a little bit. You know, I think uh, all of us think that we could coach the team better than the coach of sure. our favorite team. So for sure, yeah, they're armchair quarterbacks. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, brother, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rusty. 
Hey, next week we'll be joined by a former worship leader of one of the largest worship ministries in the world, Elevation Worship has produced such songs as Come to the Altar and uh, Resurrection King. Uh, And one of the authors of those songs and many of our beloved songs from Elevation Worship has written a new book entitled This Dream Is Not For You. Uh, It's an incredible read. I really loved it, and I know you will too. And I really love my conversation with him. So he'll be joining us next week. So make sure you subscribe and share, leave a review, and as always, keep it simple. Keep it simple.